I think the Word of God is always helpful. It always is enriching. And I wrestle with what to preach tonight or teach tonight, knowing the crowd would be smaller, knowing there would be a little bit different atmosphere in the house of God here at the Lighthouse. Uh, atmosphere is based on people present. Uh, because everyone brings their own personality, their own style of worship, their own connection with Jesus Christ. They bring that to a, to a gathering like this. And when it's, when it's different, then the, the, the attitude, the frame of mind of the service will be different because of that. And so I realize that. But I would like to teach a little bit tonight from the book of Lamentations. Now, after they just sang that song, I think it's, it's fitting. But in the book of Lamentations... It is a, it's a fascinating book to me. The preceding book is the book of Jeremiah. And the book of Jeremiah and the book of Lamentations were written by the man, Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet. He was called of God. He did the work of, the, of, the, of a prophet. He was called of God even as a, a child to, be, to do the work of a prophet, to prophesy. God instructed him not to marry and some other restrictions God placed on his life, which he fulfilled. But he was known as the weeping prophet. Now this is the prophet Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. There's multiple reasons for him to weep, for him to, to cry. Uh, one of the reasons is he realizes realized that the people were not listening to what he said. He was giving prophecies out and they were ignoring it. He was trying to call them back to worship to Jehovah, but instead they continued worshiping their idols and going their own way so he wept because of their waywardness but then he wept because God had made him aware of what their punishment was going to be for them going into sin they were going to go into Babylonian captivity they were going to be there for 70 years it was going to be a tough time for the majority of them their temple their city would be demolished burnt with fire and and he knew what was going to happen God had let him know who was going to end the the captivity he, he he knew all of that and yet he tried to tell the people they ignored him in fact he he instructed them in such a way as to not resist the Babylonians when they came in because he knew that it was the will of God for the people of God to go into captivity not as to not as to punish them in a mean way but to try to draw them back to Jehovah if the punishment was bad enough hopefully they would realize why they were in that fix and they would turn their hearts, their mind back to Jehovah and begin worshiping him and God would restore them it did not happen immediately but after 70 years it did happen just give you a little history Jeremiah prophesied for 41 years he started in the when jo jo Josiah was king and he finished when Zedekiah was king for a period of 41 years, he prophesied. No converts during that time. Uh, he was known as a weeping prophet. He was sad because what he thought that what he did accomplished so little. But I think tonight we will have a greater appreciation for Jeremiah the prophet. And I would like to read from Lamentations chapter 3. I'm reading verses 21 through 26. And in these few verses, Jeremiah tells some stuff. It's some amazing stuff, what Jeremiah has to say. So beginning reading chapter 3 of Lamentations, which is the second book of Jeremiah. Verse 21. This 
I recall to my mind, therefore, I, therefore have I hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul, therefore will I hope in Him. The Lord is good unto them that wait for Him, to the soul that seeketh Him. It is good that man should both hope and quietly wait on the salvation of the Lord. Now this is what Jeremiah is writing, begin with verse 21 of it. He opens this passage by saying, This I recall to mind. And then he gives all these wonderful positive things. It's the Lord's mercy that we're not consumed. His compassions fail not. They're new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. So he gives this group of, of positive comment, uh, comments, and yet he precedes this little deal by saying, this I recall to mind. Now when I read that, I want to know, what is the this? This I recall to mind, he says, therefore have I hope. So what did he recall to mind that gave him hope? And in order for us to understand what he was dwelling on, what he was meditating on that caused him to have hope, I'd like to start reading in verse 1 of this chapter. Now I'm going to do a very fast reading because I want to read them all, all the way up to 21. I want to read them all to you. I want you to listen to how pitiful this is. I am the man. Time out. Oh, God, I forgot to read it. I had to borrow the pastor's Bible. Somehow in my traveling back and forth, I ended up here without my Bible. But so the print's kind of little. Let me try to read it again. I am the man that hath seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. He hath led me and brought me into darkness and not unto light. Surely against me is he turned. He turned his hand against me all the day. Now, aren't you encouraged already? My flesh and my skin hath he made old. He hath broken my bones. He hath builded against me and compassed me with gall and travail. He hath set me in dark places as they that be dead of old. He hath hedged me about that I cannot get out. He hath made my chain heavy. Also, when I cry and shout, he shutteth out my prayer. Feeling better? Just reading this encouraging stuff? He hath enclosed my ways with hewn stone. He hath made my paths crooked. He was unto me as a bear lying in wait and as a lion in secret places. He hath turned aside my ways and pulled me in pieces. He hath made me desolate. He hath bent his bow and set me as a mark for the arrow. He has caused the arrows of his quiver to enter into my reins. I was a derision to all my people. I was their song all the day. He hath filled me with bitterness. He hath made me drunken with wormwood. He hath also broken my teeth with gravel stones and have covered me with ashes. Isn't that encouraging? Man, that's, he's really writing something helpful to us. Verse 17, Thou hast removed my soul far off from peace. I forgot prosperity. 
And I said, my strength and my hope is perished from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my mercy, the wormwood and the gall. My soul hath them still in remembrance and is humbled in me. Now this is what he's written for 20 verses. Aren't you really filled with hope? reading that but this is what Jeremiah said in verse 21 this I recall to my mind therefore have I hope in the middle of all of that despair dismay pain and agony to quote some old song it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not they are new every morning great is thy faithfulness the facts that he knew and he quoted in, in 22 and 23 the facts that he knew overruled, overruled all of the experiences that he had had now he is called the prophet who speaks for a nation and when he's writing this some commentaries will say that he was writing these words. It sounds like he's saying them about himself, but he's really is speaking on behalf of a nation. He's the prophet for a nation, and he's speaking for a nation. This wasn't necessarily his personal experiences, although if you do read him enough, you understood that he did have some, some grave situations. Because of his prophecy, the leaders did not like him because he was telling the people to surrender to the enemy coming in. Don't fight them. It'll be worse if you fight them. It's going to happen. God's bringing it on us. And so, But the rulers, the kings, the leaders, they frowned on him being a traitor like that, they said. And so they cast him in prison. So some of his prophecies were written and spoken from a prison. He was not a man of joy. He was not a man of happy experiences because of his life. So when you read all of the negative, he still knows the fact that God is faithful. His mercies fail not. His compassions are new every morning. And because of that, I'd like to talk a while about love, compassion, and mercy of God. Three separate things that have a lot of commonality to them. And I would like to, to look at a, a few of them just a little bit. The weeping prophet. He told the people back in Jeremiah, the 29th chapter, briefly read you what he told to them. He told them, the God of Israel speaking on his behalf, unto all that are carried away captives, whom I've caused to be carried away. This is Jehovah speaking. I've caused them to be carried away from Jerusalem unto Babylon. I tell you, build ye houses. Dwell in them, in, in that captive land. Plant gardens and eat the fruit of them. Take ye wives and beget sons and daughters and take wives for your your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters that you may be increased there and not diminished seek the peace of the city whether I have caused you to be carried away captives and pray unto the Lord for it for the peace thereof shall ye have peace for I know the thoughts that I think towards you saith the Lord thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you an expected end this is a prophecy that he told these people many of them had already gone into captivity the, other, the northern kingdom and now the southern kingdom with Jerusalem is getting ready to go into captivity and he's prophesying to them as well when you get to that captive land don't just be in the mully grubs all the time succeed wherever you're planted bloom and so just because it's an it's a awful place to be perhaps and you're not in your home country and, you're, and you are a captive 
go ahead and marry. Now, he wasn't telling them to marry those heathens, but marry. Let your sons and daughters marry. You marry. Build houses. Plant gardens. Eat of the fruit. And be successful wherever you are. And that is a, that is a little clue into God's mercies. Even though they were going into captivity because of their evil ways, he was letting them know when you get there, you can still succeed there. Now, some of them succeeded too well. They became so comfortable in the, in the captivity that, that they refused to go back when the people went back to Jerusalem to build, to build the walls and the temple. They didn't want to go back. They were too comfortable, too successful. But many, many of them said, we need to go back and build our city. And they left their comfort and they went back into the promised land that God had given them. Give you some illustrations. God is a God of judgment. I don't think we have to read much in Scripture to find out God is a God of judgment. And when a group of people turn from God, He brings judgment upon them. That's just how God is. Look at Adam and Eve in the garden. God told them, you can't eat of these two trees. And they, they did partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eve invited her husband. He partook. They both partook. And God punished them just as he said he would. And he exiled them out of the garden. Put a flaming sword turning so they couldn't get back into the garden. He punished them. That's what God is. He's a God of judgment. And I don't want us to ever forget God is a God of judgment. At the same time, God is balanced. Just as he's a God of judgment, he is also a God of love. He proved it with Adam and Eve when he told Eve, your seed is going to bruise the head of the serpent. He was prophesying to them, promising them of a coming Messiah, of a coming Savior in the form of Jesus Christ who was going to deliver them from the evil one who tempted them and they failed to at that, at that point. The, the seed of Eve was going to destroy, to stomp on the head of the seed of the serpent. That was a promise of God. In the middle of his destructive judgment, when he cast them aside, was his love that I will not always cast man aside. I'm going to be reaching for them, loving them. What about the time of the flood, if we walk through history a bit? At the time of the flood, men were evil. They were given, given in marriage and, and, and in ungodly ways. They were, uh, they were sinful. God looked at it and he repented that he had ever made man. And so he brought a flood to come, the great deluge, some will call it, but he called the flood to come, and, it, and the flood covered the entire world, and it destroyed everybody. That was the judgment of God, except for Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives. God destroyed everyone in his judgment, but in his love, in his mercy, in his compassion, he spared this one group of people. This is the people who obeyed him. They built the ark to his specifications, and when the rain came, they were in the ark, and they floated above the troubles. Now, what about Sodom and Gomorrah? Sodom and Gomorrah, the two cities in the plain, they were very evil, very sinful, and yet God had promised 
to Abraham, I'm going to destroy the city. And Abraham started bargaining with God. What if there's 50 righteous? Would you spare? God said, yeah, I'll spare. And then he started the countdown. 50, 40, 30, 25. Finally got down to 10. And, and Abraham said, would you spare the city for 10 righteous people? And God said, yes, I will. And so the angels of the Lord went to the city and there weren't 10 righteous there. So they, they somehow managed to pull from the city Lot and his wife and his two daughters. And they left the city of Sodom and Gomorrah and headed away from that plain. God was going to pour uh, brimstone down on that. So they headed up. She, uh, the wife turned around, looked, became a pillar of salt. The others escaped the destruction that was falling on Sodom and Gomorrah. God promised judgment. He promised destruction. But in the balance of God's nature was love. And when he saw some people who were doing right, then he brought them out of that country. Abraham had petitioned God for that. What about when, when God's people were crossing over Jordan River? They're going into the promised land. There's a city ahead of them. Large, massive city, the city of Jericho. And, and they, had, they displeased God. God's people were moving in. God was going to wipe the city out. And he told, who was the leader at that time? Not Moses, it was Joshua. Yeah, thank you. It, it flew my mind. Joshua heard from God, and God told him, lead the people around. Let them march around the city every day, and, and, and then, but be quiet. Let them march it for, for a week. And then that last day, make a noise, shout, and the walls are going to fall down flat. And that's what happened. The walls fell down flat because that's the judgment of God. But at the same time, there was that love, mercy, and compassion of God. There was a woman by the name of Rahab who had done some good things for the spies when they were there. And they had, they had talked with her and she asked for salvation at the time of the destruction of the city. And they said, hang a little red card out your window and, and God will spare it. And everything fell down around her, but her house, her people, her family were not destroyed. God has love, compassion, and mercy. I don't think we should ever put God all in the judgment side of the balance scale, nor should we put him all on the love, mercy, and compassion side of the scale. He is a God of balance. He's a God of justice, and he's a God who does things right. He is fair. So let's talk just a little bit about God's love, mercy, and compassion. Lamentations 3.22, we've read it. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. Two words are in that passage, mercy and compassion. Just to give you a little insight into into original language in scripture on the first part of that where it uses the word mercy if you would go to several translations of the Bible you're going to see variations some will use the word mercy there some will use the word love there the word mercy and love is interchangeable in various translations on the last half of that the word is compassions if you would read through six or seven different translations of the scriptures, you would find that that word is interchanged with mercy. So when you compare those two things, mercy and love and mercy and compassion, you will find that, that those three words in various settings mean the same. 
But let's talk about us as humans just a little bit. There is a difference in, our, in, in we humans between love and compassion. There was a, there was a blogger who, who gave what I'm getting ready to, to, to tell you. And in his blog, he was trying to describe and make a, and to differentiate between love and compassion. He says, as, as a human can have it. Now, we understand from the Greek, agape love, filial love, uh, Philadelphia love, eros love. There's at least four kinds of love in the Greek language, which the New Testament uses them at various times. Sometimes it will, it will give a descriptive so you know what, this, what it is. Other times the context will let you know what it is. But when, when scriptures talk of love, oftentimes it's talking about our love for, for us, for each other. And that love can be very hurtful and very harmful to us at times. Uh, hold on just for one second. If you ever get a chance to throw a computer away, do it. Okay. I hit a wrong button and turned it completely off. Now it's back on. Good deal. So when, when this man was trying to describe it, for my love that I have for my wife is a human love. I would love to say it's agape love, but it's not. The love that brother and sister Peters have for each other, it's a good love. They would love to, love to say it's agape love, but it's not. Because humans are not capable of loving the way God is capable of loving. So what I'm talking about right now is human love. Human love is personal. I love my family. My family loves me. But there's a bit of selfishness in that there are friends that I love but there's a selfishness in that two individuals love each other because of what they get out of that relationship now pure agape love is it doesn't matter what I get back I still pour love out I'm sorry humans can't do that we may want to say we can until we're pushed to the test and then we find out we can't love we strive for it, but we can't. But love, the object of your love in our normal human love, it is very personal. Compassion, on the other hand, is impersonal. And this guy that I was speaking of, the blogger, he, makes, he tells a personal experience of his. He goes to a homeless shelter every day, ministers in a homeless shelter. And he says, when I go to that homeless shelter, I never know who's going to be there that day because the crowd changes daily. And, and, but when, when I go to the homeless shelter, I have compassion on them, but I don't know them. I don't know anything about them except the fact that they're there tells me they're in trouble. They've got some, some dire circumstances that they're here and I serve them, them food, I do whatever, I serve them, but I have compassion on them. If they would curse me, I would still have compassion. If they would abuse me or be ungrateful, I would still have compassion for them. 
Whereas in, when we love someone and that person abuses us, is ungrateful, our love lessens. Now, I'd love to say that it doesn't. Agape love doesn't. But our normal love, when, when the receiver of our attention is ungrateful or abusive to us, unthankful, we want to distance ourselves from them. I'm not saying that's the right way, but, but most of the time, that's how we are. Now, mercy, we talked about love, we talked about compassion, let's briefly talk about mercy. Mercy is a little bit different. Mercy can, can be had for someone who is deserving of punishment. You can't have mercy on someone who's doing right because they haven't done a wrong. But when someone does wrong, when someone murders somebody, when someone steals, robs, lies, whatever, whenever, whenever someone does that evil thing, another person can have mercy on them. Now, Jesus was moved with, compassions, with compassion often. That was just what he, what he did, Matthew 9. When Jesus saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep not having a shepherd. Matthew 14, And Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion toward them, and he healed their sick. In Matthew 18, Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave him the debt. Mark 1, and Jesus, moved with compassion, put forth his hand and touched him and saith unto him, I will be thou clean. When you read of Jesus in Scripture, the, the Scriptures doesn't say that he simply had compassion. You know, as a, as a mental thought. He, he just thought a compassionate thought on them. It's not what the Bible says of Jesus Christ. It says he was moved with compassion and he healed their sick. He was moved with compassion, and he forgave that man his debt. He was moved with compassion, he, compassion, and he wanted to pray and help those people who were sheep scattered and had no shepherd. He saw need, and he had compassion, but it moved him to action. That's God kind of compassion. When we have compassion, it can be simply a mental thought. I feel sorry for him. I have compassion. But if we have a, a, a God kind of compassion, we are moved with compassion to the point of action. If we have a God kind of love, then we love without expecting anything in return. So when we talk in our normal conversation of love, mercy, and compassion, it's on one level. But we talk about God's love, mercy, and compassion. It's on a totally different level. And that's what Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, is talking about when he's presenting the story that he's presenting. His mercies are new every morning. One translation of, of, of Lamentations 3, 23 says, The goodness of the Lord has no ending. His mercies never cease. They are new every morning. God's mercies are new. In order to better understand God's mercies, a best place to go is Psalm 51. David was a man after God's own heart. When he became the king of, of Israel, he did wonderful things. 
He was a warrior king. He fought battles. He conquered enemies. He did great things. But there came a day when the kings went out to battle, but David stayed home. He stayed home. He went to the rooftop. He oversaw another rooftop there and, and he saw Bathsheba bathing and he lusted after her he desired her he committed adultery with her and they found that she was with child and he so he had her husband killed hoping to to put the child's the, the existence of a child on her husband then he took her to wife the child was born and an old prophet came to David and said, David, I want to tell you a parable. And he told him a parable of a rich man who had many, many sheep and of a poor man who just had one sheep. And the rich man had a guest that came by and, and wanted to, to stay with him, and, and he wanted to fix a meal for his guest. And, and rather than getting one of his many sheep to have for dinner that night, he went to the poor man's house and got that poor man's one little sheep and killed it and had it for supper with his guest. When David heard the story, he was angry, and he told the prophet, Nathan, the prophet, he said, this is an awful thing to do. This man should never have done that. That is not something that he should, have, should get by with. I want to punish him. I want to destroy him. And that's when I'm out again. That's awful. I hate y'all have to endure that. Time out. Time out. Time out. Hold on. Time out. Hallelujah. There's a button right here. And I touch it. And it kills it. Nathan told him, David, you're the man. I told you a parable, but this is you. And David realized that he who could have any lady in the kingdom for his wife, had multiple wives in, instead he stole a wife from some other man who only had one wife as far. God was not pleased. And he said, David, the sword will never depart from your house. And that child died. And then David had continuous problems with his children, with his sons, and grave problems. David had large problems. If there was ever a man that needed the mercy of God, David needed it. He was a man after God's heart at one point, but at this point, he was a sinner. He was a murderer. He was an adulterer. He was not pleasing God. And God sent a man of God to correct him, to try to check him, and try to bring him back into relationship with God. And in Psalm 51, David is writing. And it's a, it's a repentant psalm, it's called. I want to read a few verses from this. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness. According unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, 
that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity and sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. At this point, David is a sinner, but he is repenting and he's asking God for mercy. And God grants it to him and God restores him into a right relationship with God. But here's what I want to tell you. Did you do any of you realize God loves you? Now, did you know that you cannot do anything good or better than what you're doing right now that will make God love you more? Did you know that? You cannot come every, is it Wednesday morning that Sister Sorrels does her Bible study? You cannot come here every Wednesday morning and be in on that Bible study and pray, and because of that, God will love you more. You can't witness to people on the street and bring 15 guests to service every time, and God love you more. Did you know that? I know you knew that. But at the same time, did you realize that you cannot go out and get drunk and go murder somebody, and God love you less? There is nothing you can do bad enough that will cause God to love you less. And there's nothing you can do good enough that will cause God to love you more. Because God loves you and great is His faithfulness. He is faithful. He doesn't change and He loves you no matter what. At the same time, you have to ask for mercy trying to help you see a little distinction here. You have to repent and ask for mercy. That's why the 51st Psalm is so crucial to our relationship with God. It's crucial in our relationship with God that we understand that He loves me no matter what. But that doesn't mean I'm in right relationship with Him just because God loves me. When I do something that breaks that relationship and I, I fall out of favor with God, He still loves me, no more, no less, but He still loves me. But I have to repent and ask for His mercy. Now those people that Jesus saw when He was walking, He saw the, the people running around scattered like they didn't have a shepherd. He had compassion on them. They didn't have to ask for compassion. But in a sinful state, they have to ask for mercy. Now, God wants to pour out His mercy on everyone. That's His goal. That's why He loves, because He's reaching continually. But sometimes, like the children of Israel, he, His love for them caused Him to allow them to be taken into captivity for the purpose of bringing them to the point of repentance and asking for mercy. And when they did that, they turned back to God, and God in His continual, consistent, constant love, He embraced them and brought them to Himself. You remember the story 
of the, of the prodigal son. He said, Dad, I'm tired of living at your house. I've got some stuff that I should inherit. Go ahead and give it to me now. You're not even dead yet, but give me what I'm supposed to get, and I'm going to go out in the world and seek my fortune and have a wonderful time. And so he did. His dad gave him his stuff. He headed off, and he lived in a far country. As long as he had money, he could be happy, he thought. But once he ran out of money, he couldn't buy the pleasures that money could buy, that sin offered, and he couldn't buy even food to sustain him. So instead, he, he went to work for a farmer who raised pigs. Now, the interesting thing is Jews don't eat, don't touch, don't even want anything to do with a pig. So either this was a bad Jew that owned those pigs, or he was a heathen. Either way, he probably wasn't a good employer because this guy was having to eat what the pigs ate. The husks, he got to eat. That means that's what's left over after the corn's gone, the husks. That's what he was chewing on. And he, he came to his senses, the Bible says. And when he came to his senses, he thought, you know, the servants in my father's house are better off than me. I'm going to arise and go to my father. At that point, this young man repented. By definition, repentance means turning away from your sinfulness, making an about face, and turning and starting to walk toward God. So it's not just quitting your sins, but it's quitting your sins and then walking toward God. In the, in the English army, they don't say about face. When, they, when they're marching and, and the, whoever's doing the cadence wants them to turn around and go marching in the other direction, the English armies don't hear about face, but instead they hear repent because it means the same thing, to take an about face, to leave the direction you're pursuing and start walking another direction. And that's what this young man did when he stopped staying in the pig pen and he turned around and started walking toward his father at that point he was living in a condition of repentance and sometimes our repentance isn't instantaneous we don't feel that we get the forgiveness of God immediately this guy he started walking but when he got within visual distance of his father his father came to him and welcomed him into the family, into the home, through a party. My son, which is dead, is now alive. He's back. I'm glad to know that God's vision is not limited. And when we make that turn from our sinfulness and turn toward God, there is no need for there to be a long time. Sometimes if there is a length of time, it's because our repentance is maybe not complete. We may have stopped our sinning, but we haven't fully started walking in God's direction. But whenever we start asking for mercy, that's where that consistent, constant love of God comes into play. That's when His compassions come into play, and, and He wraps us in our arms as we walk back to Him. That's why whenever the prophet Jeremiah was writing, verse 21, he had that, those one or 20... It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, 
because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. But he doesn't quit there. I want to read the 24th verse. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul. Therefore will I hope in him. The Lord is good unto them that wait for him. To the soul that seeketh him. It is good that a man both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. Now he introduces a new word here, and it's the word hope. Hope. The people that he was writing to didn't have a hope because of their sinfulness. They were going into captivity, and let and yet the God of that balance of the judging God and the merciful, loving, compassionate God, that balance, when they became aware of that balance that God offers, they had hope. Whenever he started talking about it in verse 22 and 23, when he started talking about the faithfulness, the mercies, the compassion of God that's new every morning, it fails not, then at that point he started talking about, now I have hope. I'm glad that we can have hope in God. He is faithful. Let me read a few verses. Psalm 42, 11. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? And why art thou disquieted within me? Hope thou in God. For I shall yet praise him who is the health of my countenance and my God. Or in Psalm 33. Verse 18, Behold, the eye of the Lord is upon them that fear him, upon them that hope in his mercy. Or Psalm 147, verse 11, The Lord taketh pleasure in them that fear him, in those that hope in his mercy. Tonight, I hope in his mercy. That's, that's where I, you know, hope is expecting what you're wanting. It, that's, that's what hope is. You know, if you're expecting to have a car wreck on your way home, that's not hope. That's unfounded worry for one thing. But, but hope is when you are, are eagerly ex reaching and believing for something that you really want. That's hope. And in this case, we hope in the mercy of God. Again, we ask for mercy. God loves us. God has compassion. But His mercies are new every morning, but we need to take advantage of them by asking for mercy. Now, He's not going to turn us down. That's not the nature of a God that He is. But He still reaches for us to repent and turn in our asking of mercy. Psalm 51 is a great passage to read and understand that a little better. I'm glad I have hope. If I didn't have hope in Christ, I would be of all men most miserable. And I'm quoting a, a scripture writer. I would be of all men most miserable if I didn't have hope in the mercy of God. You know, we're a family. And we can say things in the family that we may not tell the whole world. 
I'm not asking you to raise your hand and make a confession here in the family. But, but as a family, internally, each of you, I'm asking you a question. Have you ever received the mercy of God? Now, I don't want you to make these horrible confessions and, and make everybody wonder, oh, what was it about? <laughs> Tell me. I want to know what it's about. No, everyone here has availed the mercies of God. Now, the tougher question is, how many of you have ever reached for the mercies of God on the same thing more than once? A lot of times, our failures are very similar to the failures we had last week. That's why it's so crucial for us to understand that His mercies are new every morning. When the children of Israel were walking through the wilderness, and I'm two minutes over time, my apologies. When the children of Israel were walking through the deserts, the wilderness, God gave them manna. It rained manna down every day. And they'd go out and get their manna, get all they needed for that day. But if they got too much and tried to carry it over till the next day, it spoiled. Except on the Sabbath, they were able to gather some, so they didn't have to gather any for the Sabbath day. But there was enough manna for every day. Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. What about mercies? Lord, give us your mercies. What kind of mercy does he offer? It's daily mercies. Why does he offer them daily? One thing, he knows our frame, Scripture says. He knows we're not perfect. He knows we're, we're tempted and we stumble at times. We trip and fall. The Bible says, blessed is a man seven times fall. He gets up seven times. Wasn't limited to seven times, but get up. Try again. We're not perfect. We do stumble. But his mercies are new every morning. When I woke up this morning, I said, thank you, God, for a new round of mercy. I need it. Sometimes at the end of a day, I think I've wore them all out for that day. Lord, I don't know if there's any more mercies to cover me. But I can't wait till tomorrow because I can start my day fresh mercies from God. And when I ask for them, they are readily available, and I'm glad. Amen. Shall we stand? I pray that next time you read Psalm 51 or Lamentations chapter 3 or Jeremiah chapter 29, I pray that when you read these passages, they will kind of come alive a little bit to you after our time spent tonight around the Word. Jeremiah, excuse me, Lamentations chapter 3. Read those first 20 verses and see how negative it is. And yet he says, when I thought about those things, I had some faith and hope confidence because he has compassion and love and mercy. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your goodness, your help. Thank you for 